Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Doug Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of the University of Rochester Endowment, where he has overseen the school's $2.6 billion pool of capital for 20 years. Doug's two-decade tenure at Rochester constitutes only the back half of his work in the endowment world, as he previously managed Williams College's endowment for 14 years and started his career in the early 80s at Princeton. Our conversation covers the history of Rochester's endowment, the university's broad stakeholders, asset allocation, manager sourcing, research process, investment committee, assessment of past decisions, and efforts to be a good partner to managers. 
We then dive into each asset class, touching on traditional equity, hedge funds, real assets, private equity, and venture capital. Please enjoy my conversation with Doug Phillips. Doug, so glad we're able to do this. Thank you for having me. How did you first get interested in investing? Actually, my grandfather's brother, so my great uncle, was the manager of a Merrill Lynch office in New Jersey. So between my father, grandfather, and, and great uncle, I had some early experience. And my dad and I used to watch Wall Street Week together almost every week when I was younger. So I watched Louis Rukeyser, who was terrific, and all of his guests. So you're kind of a modern-day Louis Rukeyser, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> How did that path take you to Rochester? The short story on the long path is I worked as an analyst for a few years and literally crossed Nassau Street in Princeton, where I was born, and went from an analyst at a consulting group to Princeton to helping administer the endowment before Printco was started. This was 82 through 86. Back then, there was a lot of physical custody of assets and brokerage custody, and that had to be coordinated. So there's a small team of people that did that, and I managed that team for five years. Then we did some things like adding electronic custody and bringing in spreadsheets to do what was previously done manually. And I knew a few folks from Williams College who were managers at Princeton for the endowment. And when they were looking for somebody in 1986, Williams sounded like a great place to work. So I took that position and rose to the treasurer, spent 14 years there. And then uh, was recruited to go to Rochester 20 years ago. And our president at the time, coincidentally, was a Williams alumnus, Tom Jackson. And he was able to do a little extra diligence on me because of the status. So you've been in this space almost from before the beginning. Yeah, it's back when the Earth's crust was cooling. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> said to me, oh, dinosaurs are still roaming the Earth. The evolution of the, everything has been profound over the past 37 years that I've been involved. And if we just start with... When you first arrive at Rochester, so over the last 20 years, you understood the space. What did you see and what evolved? Yeah, well, Rochester, as you know, your brother went to school at the University of Rochester. It's a private research university and it relies on its endowment, just like every other school in the country that's private. And those publics that have foundations too, they rely on their endowments. But Rochester was a particularly interesting university for me because I knew about it when I worked at Princeton, the treasurer at the time, Carl Schaefer was a graduate of Rochester, class of 1958. And when we benchmarked Princeton, we sort of looked at Rochester and said, well, that's a peculiar asset allocation. It had one of the largest endowments in the country, in top five. And there were some problems in the 70s and 80s with performance and misallocation of capital, frankly. And it never really recovered from that. So in 2000, when I was looking at it, it still had not recovered. And one of the things I pointed out was that the growth of endowments, educational endowments in this country at private colleges and universities is not so much related to investment performance, but it's related to compounding of new money. And David Swenson has pointed this out in one of his books, but it's as much as 80% of the growth in endowments since World War II has come from this accumulation of new money. And of course, if you manage it poorly, you get poor results or you're in the headlines for some problems in the organization, those monies will start to shrink or disappear. So the challenge for Rochester was to kind of get back that support from the alumni. And I talked about this in my interview, and the trustees were very interested in my perspective on that. And they were trying to recruit somebody to come in and help manage this program. And they couldn't find somebody. So I actually ran the development program in addition to running the investment program for about five years. So what were those 
structural problems or the problems you saw when you were at Princeton in the asset allocation at Rochester that caused the investment performance issues? Yeah. And by the way, we don't dwell on that because it's what happened in the past is history. You learn from it, but no one that's running the university today was there when those things happened. And we're only about the future, not the past. But the allocation problems were too much concentration in venture capital when venture cycled out of favor in the seven, well, actually in the eighties. But that was a result of trying to recover from the nifty 50 high equity allocation concentrated in the 1970s. And that was an outlier allocation. One of the things that I talk about when I discuss our process and our allocation is we try to be right down the center of the fairway in allocations. And we try to add value through picking better managers. And when you look at our allocations, you'd say, well, this is very similar to most of the bigger endowments in the country. But it was the allocation decisions made in the 70s and 80s. So why don't we just dive into where you are today and you can weave the history of that and just start with what are some of the philosophies about how you go about managing the endowment that you bring to bear from your experience? The overriding philosophy here is to keep the stakeholders, this shared governance models that universities and colleges follow. You need to involve faculty and deans, alumni, trustees, the community even, to be sure that they understand what the endowment is doing. It's not just this large pool of capital that some government folks feel should be taxed. It is a very important collection of many smaller funds that have been donated over hundreds of years, and that money's there forever. So just being sure that people aren't pushing for allocations that to a certain manager or a certain strategy that somehow is going to push us away from the norm and what's best for the university. And you'll have different views from different people. Trustees like to see the performance ranked against peers and the finance folks at the university would like to see budget stability as well as growth. And the deans, I think, want to see more money for faculty and scholarships. So trying to coalesce all of those different viewpoints is an important part of the job. How does that coalesce in how you approach the investment problem at Rochester as opposed to maybe what you see at some other institutions, you say peers that you're getting compared to in performance? Yeah. Rochester, again, has some unique characteristics that influence our performance. They're not the key factor in it, but we have one of the highest revenue sources from clinical care because of our hospitals and also research. As a result of our very high growth in that area, our assets are a little smaller as it relates to the revenue stream. And that has some impact on the liquidity. So we're actually managing a liquidity-informed portfolio more so than most of our peers. And informed means that we bucket liquidity and we look at the most illiquid components and model our cash flows and that sort of thing. So that's sort of an overall philosophy that we have to follow at Rochester that maybe some others are more liquid than we are and they can they can afford the illiquid partnerships. The other part of it is we change very slowly to an asset allocation. And we have a process we follow. It's not tweaked quarterly or semi-annually. It's once a year where we sit with our trustees on the investment committee, talk about what we've learned from the stakeholder view, and then bring that into a actionable plan for the following year. We also have a quarterly, of course, reviews, and we have semi-annual asset category, deep, deep evaluation. We call those comprehensive evaluations that bring out manager issues or opportunities that we see and then we spend the next two years working on those because as a long-term investor, you know, if you're doing this every year or quarter or something, I think you're you're on a fool's errand. So changing things gradually, taking a long-term perspective in the process and keeping stakeholders posted. When you talk about stakeholders, how do you think about maintaining alignment 
across your team and the investment effort and the people you're serving? It's an ongoing process. There's no perfect alignment. I do think that there has been no proof that I've ever seen that the investment team, some folks say, well, the investment team should be aligned with performance. So there should be performance compensation and deferred bonuses and carried interest and sort of that sort of thing. I haven't seen that shown. So we align ourselves with the university's mission in the investment office by saying we're salaried professionals, just like our faculty and our physicians. We do benchmark that against other schools with their surveys. And uh, we also realize that working in Rochester is a little less expensive than working in Manhattan or Boston or San Francisco. So there's a little bit of a, a discount for the lower cost of living in Rochester. So that's how we align the team. We also align ourselves on process by being generalists. We don't have silos of expertise where there's a hedge fund or private equity group. It's a small team of five investors, including me. And you mentioned that when you first came in, it was hard for the university to recruit someone to Rochester. I know you've had a team that's been with you for a long time. How have you gone about recruiting and maintaining your team there? The investment team, we don't recruit. We network. If we find someone that is interested in the, in the field and has the right academic and work experiences and wants to learn and sort of evolve with us, we'll talk to them and perhaps bring them in, meet other people. That's only when we're growing and we're fully staffed now. One of the pushes I got from our board was to make sure that there were enough people in the office that if something happened to me or the one or two other people that there was enough redundancy. So we've been able to find great people that have an interest in being in Rochester, family reasons. They went to school there. The lifestyle of Rochester is good. And we're, we're a family-friendly office too. We really uh, try to keep a work-life balance. Great. Well, let's dive into the investment process and start with as you worked through some of those basic philosophies and strategy, what does that asset allocation look like today? We are about 24 to 25% in the ground invested net asset value in private equity, including venture, which puts us about in the middle of the larger endowments. We have another 24, 25% in what is a large category that is affectionately known as hedge funds, but it is a wide range of different strategies. If you bucketed those two main components in hedge funds, you'd find about half of it is in long short, typically long short managers with low correlation to each other. And the other half is in return generators that are very, very uncorrelated to our benchmark or anything else in the portfolio, including our long short book. Then we have a real asset program, which is real estate, oil and gas, natural resources that is winding down. It's a little less than 10% today. Not much money going into that category. But so frankly, it's been our most disappointing area. Public equities is about a 33 to 35%, roughly 10 to 11% U.S. equity long, and the rest is outside the U.S., and more than half of the outside the U.S. is in emerging. How many managers do you have in each of those buckets? We can just start walking through those buckets. More managers on the alternative side, so more on the hedge fund and private equity side, and fewer on the public side. We think it's better to concentrate on fewer managers that have alpha-generating capabilities. What is more and fewer amount to? Well, total headcount on manager of the roster is currently in the low 60s. It's going to stay there. That's come down from close to 100. And if you include wind downs and legacy side pocket things, there's probably about 110 relationships currently, but 50 or so of those are finishing. I'm going to get into that manager selection process. And before that, do you derive that asset allocation starting with looking at peers and saying, as you said, we don't want to be too different, or is it based on some risk framework? It's both. The 
peer allocations, first of all, they're backward looking time frame. So you're you're never gonna know what schools are doing going forward. We do try to understand schools by visiting in their offices and learning about them, and we welcome those visits as well. And our philosophy as it relates to peers is since we're not performance comp based, we want everyone to do well and we're smaller than some of the larger endowments, so we're not going to take capacity if they have a manager that they like. We sometimes tag along. But generally, we are a bottom-up manager sourcing allocation group. Risk plays a part of it. As I mentioned earlier, liquidity plays a part of it. The annual planning exercise looks at allocation models and ranges of returns for asset categories going forward. We use a lot of mean reversion to what we think is fair value on categories then that is also conveyed back through our finance folks so that they know sort of what we're thinking about when we're doing the planning on asset allocation. Do you have a certain like investment objective? We do, through the modeling, come up with a number that where there's a percentage likelihood over a five-year period that if conditions hold today, that we think we can earn that. And that includes alpha generation above the benchmarks, which include benchmarking against other managers in the category as well as our public benchmark. That has historically been in the 7 to 8% nominal range, which is not a bad return if we can achieve that going forward. And we typically have a lot less volatility than our benchmark as well. And does that then allow you to dial up or down what the sort of expected returns you'd communicate to the board just based on market conditions? We have gone through that exercise a few times. The most recent one was in the GFC. And I think all investment committees had a difficult time. They're struggling with the idea of allocating capital if you have it to assets that were on sale versus saying this is an unprecedented change in our financial structure and we should be really careful in that environment. We tend not to change too much when something comes along like that. We work within allocation bands ranges, which are fairly broad for most categories. We may push, if we're getting toward the bottom, we may push upward and the same way for the top. So those are market-based as well as time-based rebalancing decisions. Okay. Let's get into the manager selection process, and then maybe we'll go through asset classes separately. But where do you come up with your manager ideas? We have, if you could picture a Venn diagram, I know your listeners won't be able to see this, but I have it in our annual report to our stakeholders. But our Venn diagram has four circles, and in the center are the managers that we are most interested in. One circle is our investment committee. They have lots of connections in the world and they bring us ideas. The other is a consultant. I won't name the consultant, but we have a firm that is well-respected in the endowment and foundation world that has some sourcing capabilities that maybe they see something that we haven't seen. We use that. We also use the peer group. And what I think the fourth circle is that most endowments don't always think of is we ask firms that we're interviewing who they think are good competitors and we meet those firms. So somewhere in the circle, the, the convergence or overlapping of those four circles is where we get our best ideas. Of the circles, the one that probably has the most weight, the biggest, deepest circle is from the peers. And again, not going to conferences or looking at surveys, but just going around when I'm here in the city, visiting our friends at other endowments. And how collegial is that process? Some schools won't see us, frankly, but I think if we're open to explaining what we do, the schools that we've talked to sometimes pick up something and they say, wow, that's really interesting and I, I like to incorporate that. And the same for us. We'll hear some things that we want to put in our process. So I think most of them are pretty open to it. But you also have to avoid groupthink. If you went around to all the endowments, 
larger top 20, 30 endowments in the country and spoke to them, they'd all be different. There's no uniform approach. So there isn't some common out. There's always a common thought process in the manager community that, oh, these endowments, foundations, they all invest with the same subset of managers. There are names that we've heard spoken that we're not investing in and names that we're in that nobody else knows about just because they're small and they fit us. There's not enough capacity. But there is a convergence around certain names and some of them are longstanding 30, 40-year-old firms that have had good succession planning and so we're in some of those firms. What do you think are the characteristics of the most successful investment firms? Well, one of our uh, great leaders, David Swenson, has talked about people as the key component. For us, it is absolutely the people. Somebody is making those decisions about putting a trade on or investing in a private company or operating that company or selling that company. If you can't trust the people, it's a non-starter. That gets to be very difficult because it's a gradation of talent and capabilities in people. And most of them are really, really good. I find that by interviewing many, many firms, and I have 38 years of doing this, you tend to notice little subtle differences in the way people act. And you tend to pick up, just in your diligence on firms, you tend to pick up stories from other investors. Maybe there's just a little something that's not quite right. So we really do try to find the best people that we can trust and be a long-term investor with them. What are some of those little things that are both positive and negative that you've picked up over the years? I think one of them is the way they lead the team internally. Is this a very top-down organization or is it flat and collegial and highly productive? If you've got a very strong leader at the top, sometimes that creates tension and there's defections and turnover. We do like to see a group. Obviously, the leaders have to be very strong, but you want to see a productive meritocracy, I guess is the right term. Some Folks say that, but they're not really doing it. The other thing we get nervous about is the firms that are always talking their own game and don't have the perspective of maybe some challenging times and are they humble about what happened in those times and did they hang together? Did their investors stay with them? So those are some of the things, Ted. How do you think about that differently from a larger firm where maybe decision-making at the security level is going to be decentralized from a, a smaller firm where you're really investing with a person leading maybe a smaller team and making the decisions. We tend not to invest with large firms just at the outset. No bad feelings about any of the large buyout funds. For example, we don't have any of those. We tend not to be in the asset gathering mutual fund space or the larger funds, the hedge funds that are more household names. We tend not to be in those. So somewhere between the very small owner-operated entrepreneurial firms, which we like to a degree, and the asset gathering large firms. is That's where we tend to like the size. You also mentioned working with a consultant. How do you derive the benefits of a consultant relationship? We started this relationship, I think it's about eight years ago, with the idea that we would not be a standard client. And what that meant for us was we don't want filtering from our lead consultant to occur. We want to sit in their offices at least once a year with our entire team and rotate their asset specialists and their their best thinkers through us so there's no coloring of the comment, no polishing it up to fit our needs. Because when you dig into these consultants and you look at the manager connections they've had and the experience, it's actually pretty helpful. So we think of them as an extension of our team rather than a sort of top-down consultant that sits in between an investment 
committee and a team. It's not how we use them at all. And there are endowments our size that absolutely turn their back on consultants and say, we never want to do that because they're not helpful. I have found them to be helpful. And we pay a fair fee, not a egregiously high fee. And it's been working for us. Where do you get the most leverage? I would say not so much on the manager sourcing. It's more on thinking about allocation and structure, weights on positions, some things we haven't thought about. Occasionally, I think there are two managers that have come through that relationship that we hired that are good. But the other part of it is the second set of eyes and ears on our materials. We use them as a little bit of a shadow investment committee. So when we're writing our quarterly report, we'll have the consultant run through it and say, well, here's something you might want to think about, or maybe this is going off in a direction that's not the right way. So they're helpful. And it makes our committee meetings more uh, effective by having that second set of eyes and ears. What does your research process look like on an individual manager? Because we're generalists, and of the five investment officers, I'm one of them. We're very, you hear that word cohesive, but we're very tight. We all work within shouting distance of each other in the office. We meet once a week to talk about ideas that we've surfaced. There's no compensation if you source an interesting manager that gets put in the portfolio. What happens is our team is out meeting firms in every city they go to based on these referrals that we have. They come back and they will talk to me about it and say, I think this firm should go into our process where we have the five of us talk about opportunities. To get in a process, there's two kind of gates that we use. One is it's got to be an augmenting manager. So it does something that we don't currently have in the portfolio, and it's a direction that we're leaning toward. So that's an augmenting gate. And we've been hiring more augmenting managers in the past few years than we have in the other category. So the other gate is replacement. So if we have a firm that we're probably not going to continue, so no re-ups, or maybe we're going to trim or leave, and we have a stable of firms that we're looking at to put in, in their place, so augment or replace are the two gates. So when there's five of you traveling all over the place and you have your portfolio to monitor, you have managers you're meeting all the time, how do you gather and keep all that information in an efficient way? Yeah, this is a point I made because you're managing the torrent, I like to call it. There is an amazing amount of information that comes from current managers and prospective managers. Tracking, getting down to the firms that you're really interested in, and tracking them deeply is part of our work. So we have a system. There's a person that manages that for us. There's a certain amount of inbound inquiries that go through that, that get assigned to an analyst, and then maybe they go up to an uh, investment officer. But managing that torrent through a system is very important. That system also has sort of a hot button that anyone in the office can click that button on a particular piece of information, news or manager, and that goes right up to me. And that comes to me daily. So if there's something that needs my attention, I, I know about it right away. Yeah. So whether a manager is a potential augmentation or a replacement, what happens is it from that initial instinct of a meeting through the process? Usually the first variable is time. So it's not as if we find a firm and six months later they're in the portfolio. It takes us about a year or two to decide whether we're going to be moving ahead. One thing we do with our committee, we have a complete autonomy on hiring managers, but we don't want the committee to be surprised ever. So we thumbnail managers that we're interested in. Thumbnail is a half a page in our quarterly report. And we say, this is a firm that's in the pipeline for potential hiring, maybe six months, a year down the road. If you know anything about the firm or you know somebody you think is better, 
let us know now so that when we produce the hiring memorandum, we're not going to surprise you or you're not going to surprise us. So that process has evolved over the years. And, you know, there's all the things that go into actual hiring, so contract review and operational diligence. And we do reference checks, particularly on any uh, investors that have left the firm. We like to talk to them. When you're sitting in Rochester on a, on a day when you're not traveling or a week you're not traveling, what do your days look like? There's a cycle. There's a cadence to the work. My daily activity is looking at manager materials, talking to the team. There's a weekly cycle, which is our internal investment committee meeting, which happens two to three hours every week. There's a monthly activity where we're looking at our portfolio each month, closing and just sort of how did we do, knowing that there's latency on reporting from privates. Quarterly, there's the committee cycle, which we do. And then annually, there's our report. But then there are these biennial activity where we talk to our committee about the big asset categories and what we're thinking and seeing. So preparation for those things too, that takes a little bit of time. We do a lot of writing in our office. We never present something that hasn't been thoroughly what we call group edited. We sit in one of our conference rooms, we put up a screen and we look at every single sentence in the recommendation and we pick it apart and we take a devil's advocate position. So that's a lot of fun, but I like to read those things beforehand and have my comments ready to come into the meeting. And as a team of generalists, we find that it's very helpful to, to get together in that way and talk about decisions. How do you ultimately make the decisions on your team? Well, by the time we get to a hiring memorandum to our investment committee, so we produce a, it's probably a 12-page hiring memorandum. It has listed everything that we know about the firm, and that's the key. So there's no hiring memorandums that we produce that somehow are just going to disappear and we're not hiring the manager. That's a very serious undertaking for us. And one of the things we've learned over the years is that in those memorandums, we actually put in something we call what could go wrong. And the things that, that go wrong with investments are typically not always identified in our risk section. So we look at organizational behavior and just other things that might come into play. And then you mentioned that you make the decisions independent of the committee. How do you integrate your whole process with the committee in addition to sort of the thumbnail of a manager? I'll tell you, we have an extraordinary committee. We have some very well-recognized investors and leaders of financial firms. They understand the need to delegate and take a governance role rather than a hands-on operating role for investments. And also because I've been there a long time, <laughs> there's a great deal of trust that's been built up between the committee and me as the chief investment officer. So integrating it, again, this process of thumbnailing and the annual report that we do for our committee, you have a copy here in front of you. It's, we do an extensive look back on all of the decisions we've made. And now we have 20 years worth of these decisions. And we evaluate these decisions on whether they were a good decision or not. And when we go into a new investment, we have a phrase we call it prospective hindsight. So we look back when we made similar decisions and we say, looking today with hindsight on what we've learned, are we fully incorporating all of those things into our process? So I remember you had a surgeon on here not long ago. He talked about pausing and making sure everybody is together and just stopping. That perspective hindsight is part of that process. And I think our committee really appreciates how we do that. What have you learned from doing those assessments over the years? The biggest takeaway from those is that we tend to release managers, at least on the public side or the hedge fund side, 
right before periods of really good performance. <laughs> so I say that with the, with the highest degree of, of humility. It's not always the case. Some don't do well. We tend to hold managers, if they have a performance problem or something went wrong in their process, as long as the people are the same and they're not dramatically changing, we tend to tolerate shorter-term performance glitches as long as we understand the reason. And usually the reason is pricing. It's that something in the portfolio is just being mispriced by the market to a greater degree, and we hang on for those periods. So that's a, such a common behavioral problem that befells everybody. When you're thinking about your portfolio today, inevitably there's a manager somewhere in that portfolio who hasn't been performing great. Think about a specific example. How do you dive in and figure out, okay, we're just going to hold on because the performance isn't good. And other times, the performance not being good is a signal that you know it might continue to not yeah, be good. Boy, you're, I should end the interview now because now I'm going to I'll have to talk about our secret sauce. No, we have a process a little bit that's called watering the weeds and uh, trimming the flowers. So if we have confidence in a manager and the performance is poor and things are otherwise good, we may increase the allocation. If a manager has had very good performance and we're particularly if we're moving in a different direction, we will trim that firm despite good performance. And then firms will say to us, wow, it's really interesting that you're trimming after we've had a good year. And we'll say, well, it's not for allocation reasons. It's just our philosophy. And that has been additive to our process by moving money to managers that have underperformed, particularly if their category is a little bit depressed on our, we talk about our risk and planning model. If we see opportunities in that area, we'll increase the size. And how do you balance that with the reality that a lot of the managers you'll have in your portfolio are highly desired? And if you trim, it's not always the case that you'll be able to add back if they soften. It's almost always the case that when we trim, we can't put that money back. <laughs> so I'm just thinking of a situation recently where we did that. That action has to be taken very, very carefully. And an explanation to the manager about why you're doing it so that if they do have capacity in the future and you'd like to put more money with them, you can still have a a spot. Firms really appreciate the candor from us in explaining why we're taking money. How do you think about the math of that where let's say you're right and the managers had excess short-term performance, so it's an opportunity to trim. But if you look out five years, you still think they're going to add a tremendous amount of excess return. That case happens fairly often. And in many cases, we won't trim just because of performance. And we like a firm to get bigger as a part of our portfolio because of performance. So there are, out of our 60 or so firms, there's probably 10 that we're just leaving alone because we still like the opportunity of the runway ahead of them. And if we bump up against our overall category limits, I was mentioning earlier that we have ranges that we work in, then we'll explain we're at the top of our category and we have to pull a little bit away. But that doesn't happen too often. At a certain size of assets, and you're probably in that spot, it's not easy to necessarily differentiate your capital from someone else's. You're not so big that you're their largest client in many instances. How do you think about being a good partner to managers? I think the overall comment that I hear most from managers is, are you going to be on our doorstep a lot with quarterly operational due diligence updates? And are you going to nitpick us on our results looking at how far down in the portfolio? So if we're going to be a high maintenance Obviously, we have a job to do for diligence and monitoring, but if we're going to pester them, that means that we're not going to be a good client. So there's a balance between informing and pestering. 
And I think we're respected as a good endowment client. And sometimes a manager will refer us to another firm that we that they think would be a good fit for us, for our portfolio as a, as a result. So good that networking and being respected as an investor helps. Let's walk through some of the asset classes and let's start with the largest bucket, this traditional equity. What are the characteristics of the type of managers you like to have just buying equities? First of all, the overriding characteristic in almost all cases in our managers is concentration on names. And what does that mean in terms of numbers? Anywhere from a dozen to 20 typically. But there are some firms that have in the 100 range. We like to see managers that have very deep knowledge of their companies, but are also aware of the macro environment. So the staying away from higher priced securities that are likely to have problems if we hit a recession or earnings glitches come along. So there's a value tilt. We think of that more value and that's been a little harder for us recently. We also benchmark against Acqui, not the S&P, so it's a global mandate. But we re-weight the Acqui based on GDP of the countries that it represents so that it tends to overweight emerging, for example. So the cap weight versus the GDP weight makes the GDP weight benchmark tilt in favor of emerging. And what are the most pronounced? Is that that China and India predominantly? Yeah, those are the big weights for us. But also Southeast Asia, there's other components in there, not so much in the European area. Do you implement the emerging market manager allocations to country-specific or region-specific, or they tend to be more general? It's both, but mostly country, particularly China and India. And how do you find those managers on the ground in those countries? Those are sourced through networks. These are not mutual fund or household name firms. If you looked at the endowment investors in those, you'd see names that you'd recognize. How do you go about monitoring a manager with five people in Rochester on the other side of the world? One thing that we do to be as efficient as possible when we visit uh, countries is we tend to do these meeting paloozas. So <laughs> I think Charlie Munger talks about Lollapaloozas or something. But meeting paloozas are all five of us go to a country, spend a week there. I'm getting old. It's, it's, very, it's very hard for me to keep the pace with our younger folks. But they'll want to do five, six, seven meetings in a day for five days or sometimes six days in a row and just cover the gamut across the asset categories and across managers. That, so firms that we're investing in and firms that we're interested in in those cities. So that can be in Mumbai, it can be in Beijing or Shanghai. How often will you do that? Once a year. Actually, for domestically, we might do it. Three or four of us might do it more than that. So New York is easy for us. So is Boston and elsewhere. You mentioned in the hedge fund allocation, there's sort of long short equity and then diversifying or uncorrelated. How do you think about the long short equity compared to your long equity traditional bucket? Yeah, well, it's a good question because the long part of the long short equity has beta to our benchmark. We tend to think of the long short equity managers as having, for the short side, we want to see them outperform the inverse of a public benchmark. And usually it's the S&P or something like that, that we know that they're adding value on the short side. It's very hard in a rising market like we've had the past 10 years to do that. And not all of our managers do it every year, but we like to see that kind of performance. And alongside, we want to see outperformance, obviously, against the long side, preferably the uh, Acqui. And most of our long managers have more beta exposure in them than we typically might want to see, but it's been a good thing in, in this rising environment. One of the things we don't expect our long short managers to do is to generate alpha against our long 
equity benchmark in a rising market. That would mean that they're pushing it too hard on the long side. And do you have a preference for either the focus of the fund, the size of their balance sheet, you know, the structural ways they invest in long short? Depends on the opportunity set they're after. I think it's very hard to have a large AUM and chase large stocks that way. And what does large AUM mean? Oh, multi, well, five to 10 billion and up. There are some that are 20 to 30 billion. We're not in those. The smaller AUM firms tend to be younger, more aggressive. And we like to have a mix of sort of those mid-size and smaller long short managers. And you had mentioned earlier that even though long short managers aren't correlated to each other, how do you go about structuring that piece of the portfolio so that's the case? Well, we look at the components they're investing in, whether it's sectors or companies, and they get put into a correlation matrix and we look at vol and many different factors that are in our model. We have our own modeling software. But then the real part of it is sitting down with those managers after having the knowledge from your existing portfolio of managers and saying, is this really differentiated? And is it likely to continue to be differentiated in the future? It's hard to do, and it doesn't happen very often that we add a long short manager. But when you look at the firms we've hired and the performance, they really are uncorrelated to each other. It's remarkable. So the process seems to work for us. What's been the average length of those relationships? Oh, the longest one goes back to when I started 20 years ago, and it was a firm I knew when I worked at Williams College. And I did pull some of the relationships from Williams. And Williams is still invested, but I was able to get us a spot at uh, the University of Rochester. But 20 years. And on average? Seven to 10, probably, on a name-weighted, not a dollar-weighted basis. And how about the uncorrelated or diversifying? Other than the return stream, how do you figure out which managers you want to have in your portfolio on that side? We like firms that have the ability to allocate capital in periods of very unusual pricing or economic environments and have a deep bench of people, particularly the multi-strategy firms that have been around for 30, 40 years, that make very consistent returns that when you look at the sources of those returns, they vary from year to year, three, five-year periods. And they're not afraid to take a bigger swing when those fat pitches come up. We like those type of firms, but we don't want to have the same firm doing the same thing. So some of them have a sandbox that is more specialized than others are sort of playing on the beach. There are a lot of firms that you mentioned that 20 years, been around for 30 years. The leaders of those firms are one by one winding up their careers. What does your portfolio of hedge funds look like 10 years from now? I'd say we have about a dozen or so relationships. I'd say there's probably one or two that will have succession and we'll have to evaluate whether that next team is is good. We think the bench is good, but we also look at what others are saying, and maybe there's something that we're not seeing. And if there's a runoff in assets, if when change is happening, that gives us some concern. Not always the case that that is a bad thing for future performance, but we treat those firms as if it's a new firm. So we put them through the initial hiring activity. The question was, would we hire that firm today? If it doesn't pass that test, then we exit. There's always these questions, these structural questions about hedge fund fees and performance having come in, which it has over the years. Are there times where you step back, take that pause and say, I know we have this big allocation today. The world is clamoring that hedge funds are bad. Should we reevaluate the whole thing? It's the first question that we have posed to our investment committee at next month's meeting, because we're doing one of these biennial 
comprehensive evaluations and so on hedge funds. And the question is, why would we have high-fee, illiquid managers that produce a return that is it's essentially the return of the endowment portfolio over time, so 7 8% net, where there's risk. These firms can be wrong. They can be over lever. They can just make bad security selection. So why would we take that? And the lockup prevents us from reallocating capital, so it's illiquid. The answer to that is, I think most people, or not most, but many institutional investors misunderstand the role of hedge funds. My experience in 38 years is that when times are really rocky and the benchmark is down or there's enormous volatility, hedge funds can be enormously valuable. And the problem that allocators have is they don't put enough money into hedge funds. So when those times come along, their 5% or 10% allocation to hedge funds doesn't do much for their for their preservation of capital. So if you're going to do hedge funds, I say make it significant. Make sure you have the best managers. Don't worry about the fee. Don't worry about the liquidity, but stay with it. It's very hard after a period of 14% return in the S&P for 10 years to say, well, my hedge fund program is making eight. It's not worth it. Well, it is. All right. Let's turn to real assets. You mentioned that this is the piece that's shrinking and has been the most disappointing. Yeah. This is another exercise in humility here. (laughs) Our program stems from a couple of things. We had misallocated capital before the global financial crisis, meaning we put too much money out. And our managers were we expected behavior to be a little more consistent in terms of deploying capital that they called, particularly in real estate, it went out too fast. We also got caught in the commodity cycle. You saw that natural resources were the worst performing component of the S&P 500 for the past decade. So we had a commodity cycle working against us. We had managers that paid too much and our just our allocation was too high. It's unfortunate. Now, not every manager in the portfolio has performed poorly. The program is making money. It's just not performing the way we expect it to perform for the level of illiquidity that we're taking. So going forward, looking at real estate, and there are those who would argue against this, but cap rates are low. And if we have a rise in interest rates, real estate might be affected. I've been through a few real estate cycles, as have you. Commodities is tricky. There's substitution risk. The shale revolution has changed the production characteristics here. So we're making very small allocations and letting the category work its way down. On the private side, you mentioned on the called private equity or buyouts not being in the big guys. How do you think about more and more expensive pricing? Well, you know, the EBITDA multiples are record high and there's 1.4 trillion of uncalled capital out there. Uh, all of this is bad for private equity going forward. Unless you can find firms that have really superior operational capabilities. And you hear this a lot that, you know, we, we can operate companies, even though we're paying a higher price, the, the synergies we achieve through acquiring and cost cutting and then exiting at very favorable evaluations to strategics rather than going through uh, IPOs. You hear this a lot. Firms that can do that, I think, are relatively few. And we tend to like firms that have had companies that with really pretty severe problems, not too many of them, but they've shown the ability to work through those problems, hang on to the companies, get them back to where they should be, and then sell them for an amazing multiple. <laughs> so, If you walk through some of that, on the one hand, you've got an environment where private equity businesses are trading among private equity firms. And so there's this question of, can you keep wringing out efficiencies 
how do you play that into your assessment? I don't want to paint the broad brush and say that every private equity firm that sells another private equity firm, that that's a bad thing because it does happen. And track record is mixed on what happens to those companies, but some of them go on to great success under new ownership because they have different management styles or they have different abilities to bring in acquisitions and other things. I'd say no broad brush painting here, and we're a little bit agnostic on whether that's a good thing or bad thing. It's in the managers we have, it's not that common, frankly, that there's a sponsor to sponsor sale. It's more that they're selling to strategic acquirers that that company can tuck in and do something for them that they didn't have in the program. And how do you differentiate between, on the one hand, liking private equity firms that stick with troubled companies and can fix things and the low financing environment in this potential to extend and pretend? <laughs> yeah, so staple financing, right? So you, everything that comes across the desk is starting to get the financing done and uh, the covenants are light or non-existent. That's worrisome. I think it pushes prices up too because it's an easy transaction. The firms that find things that are probably not in the traditional selling environment, so they're sourcing them just like we do for managers. They're sourcing ideas from their network of companies. Some of them have entrepreneurs that are forming companies. They're of interest. CEOs that have left companies and are still networked. They're on boards and they hear of things. There are ways to buy companies that are not too heavily auctioned or financed. And on the venture capital side, there's certainly a thought process that access matters a lot. How have you approached that asset cast? That's all that matters. If you don't have access to the best firms, you either create a roster of sort of up and coming firms and hope that a bunch of them do well. But in our view in the office is that there are probably only a handful of firms that can operate venture capital globally across the stages and have the ability to invest in companies early, realize the ones that are not going to work and just let them go and then really focus on the companies that are going to do well and bring them up to the size that they can be sold at a very nice multiple. Access to those kind of firms, they're hard closed with 10 levels of hard closure. You won't even be able to talk to them. Here, some past relationship work has been my secret. I just have known a few firms, and we're in one very, very well-known firm that's been great for us. But we were able to access that firm at a time when Others were shunning venture, and that was right around the tech wreck. And you have to be a very, very good limited partner to access firms like that. What did that feel like for you? Right, there was a reason why other people weren't stepping up at that point in time. I give credit to our investment committee. They were with me when I started in 2000, right around the tech wreck, on the idea that there were some dislocations happening in Palo Alto, frankly, with the uncertainty about LPs being interested in funding their commitments. And our committee was great. As a new CIO, I said, I'd like to buy some of those LP interests, those commitments, and sit in, I think we bought 12 of them, become a limited partner in some of these firms through the secondary purchase, which we did directly. And we also purchased fund of funds. So once every 20 years, you get a shot at that apple. I don't think I might not ever see it again, I mean, given the appetite out there. And the, the secondary programs have evolved to the they're pretty mature, so there's a lot of money out there. So on top of this asset allocation, which might look like other endowments and a process you've been involved with for two decades to try to get at the best managers, we've also talked about your interest in certain key themes that are happening in the world. 
Why don't you talk about the ones that most excite you? Well, the theme I focus on is that I'm an optimist about the world. And obviously what's happened in China, the movement of people into the middle class and their economy still growing the fastest in the world. The reliance on China's internal economy. I think I just read that China's exports to the U.S. now are just 4% of their GDP. So when you see something like that, again, that's something I'll never see again in my life. The other themes that we followed are just generally changes in the U.S. too. We've become a a little more divisive country, in case you haven't noticed. But there are companies, the tech companies here are some of the best in the world. And investing through venture and other things in technology is great. Biotech advances, people are living longer, living healthier. We actually have less violence in the world today. It's astounding to think that with all the, the news media, but we're living in a great time. There's a professor at Harvard who wrote about this. He said he's not an optimist, he's a realist, but he just looks at the statistics in our world that cancer survival rates, five-year survival rates are through the roof now. You, you really can, can live a long time if you have cancer. Education rates, thanks to places like the University of Rochester, where we give a great financial aid to, to our students, keep going up. So high school graduation, college graduation, graduate school, it's a hockey stick for the U.S. and around the world. How do you think about integrating those key themes into impacting the portfolio? We look for managers that are aware of that. If they don't see the world evolving in a good way, there are always going to be these problems that come along. But generally, we like to see firms that are tracking with consumer behavior, technology, particularly biotechnology, a little bit light in biotech. But we like to see managers that have a view. We also like to see managers that have a perspective on, particularly on the short side, things that are problematic in companies, you know, fads and potential failures coming and can identify things that are overhyped and ready to go against those. How do you think about your competitive advantage compared to the rest of the allocation world? I said something earlier. We want all endowments and foundations to do well. We don't have any proprietary knowledge at the University of Rochester. This is charitable money. It supports at a wide range of activities across the US. It's one of the best parts about our country is how these donors have helped assure the future of activities, you know, whether it's healthcare or education or whatever activity they're enthusiastic about, they can perpetuate it. So when we think about competitive advantages, I don't really like to think of us as competing against other allocators. I think we should be collaborating with them. Size, if you had to look at one thing about us, 2.6 billion, that's a reasonable size. So we can take bite sizes in 20 to $50 million increments Whereas a $25 billion endowment, if they're in the same same philosophy of concentrating on managers, that's a $250 to $500 million allocation. That's a lot for a smaller manager to allocate. But we're also of a sufficient size that we can hire good people, like the five of us, and it's a meaningful portfolio. Well, great. Doug, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I have to be careful because I have a lot of hobbies and I don't want anyone to think that uh, <laughs> that I have too many. But yesterday afternoon, I was stepping off of a chairlift skiing in the uh, Finger Lakes area of Western New York, which is a beautiful place to live and work, frankly. But I play a little golf and do a little fishing. I'm a scuba diver also. So my wife and I have a pretty adventurous life and it's fun. That's great. What's your biggest pet peeve? I don't really have pet peeves. I think I have fairly thick skin to a lot of things. I do wish people sometimes would not offer so many opinions without having the facts to support their opinions across the world. I see that 
and I try to avoid that kind of behavior myself. What about on the investment side? I mentioned earlier, uh, talking your own book, that this is what we do and we've got our blinders on. And I accept that, that there are very good specialists in categories, but sometimes externalities come into play that firms aren't always aware of. And I like to have people that kind of step back a little bit and say, uh, you know, I understand there's other things happening in the world and here's how it could affect us. But if they're just on their own book and that's all they talk about, I think they're missing something. What have you learned recently that's most stayed with you? What stayed with me recently is what I was talking about earlier, the longevity of people and health and how as a society, we're actually doing pretty well for most of our citizens. As a capitalist society, we're in country, we're going to have some poverty and it's unfortunate that we continue to have that, but I'd like to see less poverty, but I think our country's doing pretty well. How do you and your team use social media? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see a use for it. So we don't use Twitter or Instagram or I had a LinkedIn account. It was a personal account, which I didn't find useful. So I got rid of that. But I think some of our folks personally might be using those things, but it's more for family, friends. At least I hope they're not networking with our managers using social media. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? You know, my dad served in the Air Force and so did my wife's father. He was an army officer. And I picked it up from my dad, a love of traveling and seeing things and experiencing it firsthand. He was stationed in Korea and Japan and England and spent part of his time at RCA up in Canada and Saskatchewan. But uh, meeting different people, being willing to endure the occasional hassles that come with travel, and particularly being in Rochester, which is third largest city in the state of New York, 1.2 million people, but it is a little bit out of the path of most people. So we have to spend time on the road. And I think I picked that up from my dad. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I think the value of being a good colleague up and down the organizational chain at a university, I try to be that way. I think earlier in my career, I didn't really appreciate what value there was in reaching out to others at universities and colleges to internally just understand what they're doing and being sure that stakeholders is the word I've been using, but it's really just being a good colleague and understanding what the deans are trying to do with their schools, and understanding particularly our donors too. Uh, stewardship of endowments is a very important function. So explaining what's going on to the current donors and the families of past donors too. They really appreciate that. So I guess I would think of that as the relationship building. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.